Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. The Resurrection. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Solomon, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right-hand side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So that's the kind of the question that we're actually going to be looking at this morning: is who will roll the stone away? And I, just as this is the last uh, sermon in the series, I, there's another question behind that that I'd like to to kind of share with you. So at the moment, there's lots of uh, truths that go around uh, that we all hear uh, from society, from our friends, and one of the ones that's interesting at the moment is that all religions are basically the same. Is a truism that we're uh, told by lots of people. But uh, that's wrong. <laughs> and it's mostly wrong. I think what, I, what, we, uh, what I'd like to talk about is that uh, religions generally fall into two categories. So I'd like to just kind of have a quick look at the top four uh, world religions just to see uh, whether this is a true statement or not. So Buddhism is number four, and it's a spiritual tradition, focuses uh, on a personal spiritual development and the attainment of a deep insight, knowledge, into the true nature of life. Buddhists try and seek to reach a state of nirvana, enlightenment, following a path that Buddha set, their founder. And in order to achieve this enlightenment, which is basically their salvation, a Buddhist must practice and develop their morality, meditation, and wisdom. Buddha, the founder of the Buddhist faith, died over 2,500 years ago. So that's Buddhism. Next, Hinduism. Hinduism is kind of a bit more of a way of life, some would um, not call it a religion, but it embraces a world of karma, which is a moral law of cause and effect, and a kind of a cycle of uh, action, reaction, birth, death. It's a very cyclic type thinking. And this is something that we kind of widely know in the West is reincarnation. So salvation uh, from this life is also called nirvana, and is achieved through a higher self-realization uh, and knowledge quite a similar themes going on, that liberates us from this particular cycle of life and death. And the correct application of one's dharma, which is kind of a duty or morality, uh, tries to achieve this. And although there's no real kind of single founder of this uh, understanding of life, there are many sages who are recognized as having written the, 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 the scriptures, the sacred scriptures, and all of them uh, died about 2,500 years ago. So, Islam's next. 
Muslims believe that Islam, which means submission to the will of God, uh, believe that uh, Islam was revealed in Mecca to uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And in order to go to heaven, salvation, Muslims must follow the laws in the book of the Holy Quran and the Sunnah, which are the five basic pillars of Islam. And these pillars were an example set by Muhammad himself. Muhammad, which the Muslims believe was the final prophet, died about 1,400 years ago. Spotting a theme here, maybe some of you. Finally, Christianity. Christians understand that this world was created to be something that it's not at the moment. And the reason of that is because of the sin of humanity going against God's laws. We are sinners by nature and choice and we can't save ourselves no matter how much we try, unlike what some of the religions say. However, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead put on humanity, came to earth, lived the life that we couldn't live, died to death that we should have died, in order that we might have salvation that we couldn't achieve by ourselves. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, died, rose again, still alive, right now in heaven looking after his church. So just a very quick snapshot of the four most widely accepted religions, and I apologise, it's quite a simplistic view, and I wasn't uh, trying not to capture the essence of each one. But just to try and put the point across, to contrast the four major religions, and I hope that we can see that there's a bit of a clear divide which goes on between them as we look at the different religions. On the one hand, salvation is earned. On the other hand, it's gifted. On the one hand, death is unavoidable, even for the founders of the world religions. And on the other hand, death is defeated and conquered. I think Christianity stands unique amongst all of the other world religions in two very distinct ways. Salvation is through faith, and this is made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. And these are the two points that are at the very centre of the Christian faith, on which all else stands and fails. And as Paul, one of the founding leaders of the early Christian church, writes, and Angus was just talking about a little section <coughs> of that book from 1 Corinthians 15.9. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, if, if the only thing we have in this life is hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied above all men if these two things are not right. So this is the final sermon in a series going through Mark's Gospel, looking at questions and answers. And this final question, which is, who will, roll, roll, who will roll the stone away? Has behind it another question which has been running through the whole uh, series in Mark. And that's the underlying question that Mark is trying to address. And that question is, who is Jesus? And this is the very question that Mark has been writing to in his whole gospel. And if you turn to me, turn with me to the uh, very first chapter and very first verse, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. We read the first line, the beginning of the gospel, it's the good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is, plain as day. The whole gospel pivots around that statement. And there's actually the central passage uh, that we talked about um, five sermons ago, 
in this series uh, where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, Who do you think that I am? And Peter's response, we read that in Mark 8:29. He says, You are the Christ. Which is halfway there. That's halfway into the statement that Mark talks about at the beginning. Halfway through the book, halfway through the statement. The disciples at this point acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the Saviour, the Liberator, the Leader, what the Jews call the Messiah. But they hadn't fully grasped the full part of that statement. <coughs> because what Jesus goes on to describe after that statement, after they've said that he is the Messiah, they go, he goes on to talk about the other aspects, that he has to die, and that he's going to be handed over to the Jews. So I think here in this last section of Mark, we have the, the conclusion where Mark is trying to draw us to understand the full identity of who Jesus is. So let's consider this question as we try and put all the pieces of the puzzle finally together in this last uh, section of Mark. And I just want to look at it in three ways. Just look at the passage, uh, just split up into three ways. First, we'll look at the women's arrival at the tomb. Then we'll look at the angel's announcements, what they said. And then finally, the woman's response to the news of Jesus' resurrection. So we're looking at the question of who is Jesus, these three points, looking at the different aspects of this passage, the women's arrival, the angel's announcement, and their response. So let's consider the woman's arrival at the tomb first. And some of the events, perhaps, that led up to this point in the text. Let's consider the opening words of uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol for a second. I don't know how many of you have read it. I've seen the, uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol, and every time I, I read the book recently, and I just couldn't get that out of my head. Uh, maybe you've not seen that either. But Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatsoever about that. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, Dickens tells us, or nothing wonderful can come from the rest of the story. We can be assured that Jesus died on the cross. And this, is, this must also be distinctly understood, although nothing that follows in this passage is of any worth. As we read in Corinthians, we should be pitied among all men. Jesus had been beaten, blindfolded, and struck. Jesus had been flogged, cruel Roman process that many men died from. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head before being beaten repeatedly over the head with a thick reed. He'd not slept all night. He'd not eaten since the Passover meal. And he was forced to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. And it's likely that he was in such uh, a physical state that he stumbled on the way. And they had to call someone out of the crowd in order to carry the rest, the, cr the crossbeam, the rest of the way for him. Then he was nailed to the cross by his hands and his feet and lifted up naked and hung at eye level with the crowd for humiliation this was the most brutal form of execution 
and this had been perfected by the Romans. They knew what they were doing. They'd been doing it for a long time to lots of people. And they'd done it, they'd got so good at it that often the victims would hang there for days in agony. In fact, uh, it's from the word crucifixion that we get the word excruciating. It literally means from the cross. And Jesus hangs on that cross about three hours before he cries out in a loud voice and laid down his own life, breathing his last. And let's not make a mistake either that Jesus just swooned. Even if he'd managed to survive the physical beatings, the scourging and the crucifixion, the Roman soldiers were not about to let someone off the cross if they hadn't died. So they took a spear and they thrust it into his side, up into his heart cavity. That's where you see the water and the blood run from. He's then wrapped up in 40 kilograms of linen and spices, and laid in a tomb with a rolling stone across the entrance, likely to be about a meter in diameter, weighing the same as a small car. Not only that, the Romans then put a seal across the entrance and they set a guard just in case. So this is the situation that we find the women coming to. They were heading to the tomb and they were beyond doubt that Jesus was dead. They knew because they were there. They were there at the crucifixion. They watched the body be taken down and carried to the tomb. They watched the stone being rolled in front. We see this just uh, just said just in the passage uh, just before our, our our passage here in the verse just before. So they were witnesses to all this. They'd rested on the Sabbath day, and now we see that they come early and Sunday morning with more spices to anoint Jesus' body. And we witness the love of these women towards Jesus, that they would honour him by extending the burial process that they'd started on Friday. But they didn't expect him to be alive. They'd gone to anoint him further. Although Jesus had mentioned to his disciples that he would rise from the dead. But they weren't there. They were hiding in Jerusalem for fear of the Jews behind locked doors. So who did these women believe Jesus to be? They believed him to be the Messiah. And they were watching and waiting for him to act. They wanted him to step up. They believed that he'd come to Jerusalem to make his move. We saw that at the grand entry that Jesus made and the disciples and the the reaction that they gave to him as he came in on the donkey. But we see that their discussion as they come to the tomb is not one of anticipation, but it's one of considering who would roll away the stone for them from the tomb so that they could go in and finish um, anointing Jesus' body. They were not discussing whether he would rise again. They believed him dead and gone. And they didn't even know the further detail and the further complication of the Roman guard at the tomb. Otherwise, maybe they'd be discussing that too. So arriving at the tomb, we see an interesting comment from Mark is that they looked up. They'd obviously had an attitude of 
of uh, mourning. And they looked up and they saw that the stone had been rolled away. We're told that they could see this from a distance because it's a large stone. And this is more significant perhaps than they even realised because of the presence of the Roman guard. Although it's technically possible to roll the stone away from the outside, it's possible from the inside. There's no way to get purchase on the stone itself. But not just that, there was a Roman guard sat there to prevent anyone from trying. And there was a seal of the Roman government too. So something very unusual was happening here, even beyond what the woman had realised at that particular moment. So they entered into the tomb and they came face to face with an angel and they were alarmed. Alarmed because this was so much beyond what they'd set themselves up for. They'd prepared prepared themselves emotionally uh, to pay their last respects to the man they considered the Christ. But instead, they were met with the stone rolled away and an angel greeting them. So these are the first pieces of the puzzle that Mark lays out for us. Jesus died. He was buried. The women witnessed it. They came to the tomb fully prepared to anoint him further. But instead, they're witnesses now to a rolled back stone and an angel awaiting them. And their emotional state of shock shows us that this is beyond something that they are imagining. So that's the first point. Let's look at the angel's announcement. What do we learn of the identity of Jesus from what the angel spoke to the women at the tomb? The angel first looks to comfort them from their amazement and says, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Literally, this says, Jesus the Nazarene, the crucified. Here we see two statements, two clues, two pieces of this puzzle. The angel speaks of Jesus' identity as the Nazarene. It's an earthly identity. This is something that might not be so unusual, but the next one is a bit unusual. The next identity that the angel attributes to Jesus is the crucified. He's actually attributing crucifixion as part of his identity. I think what we can see here is that crucifixion was no mistake. This was planned for, this was embraced, this was achieved. This was part of a plan, something that has been accomplished. Next, the angel announced that Jesus is risen. But it's actually written in the passive form. So it literally means Jesus was raised. God the Father raised up Jesus. This is good news indeed for the women who came expecting that Jesus was dead to find that he had been raised. And they should rejoice in that. He was raised by the Father because he'd done a good job. Jesus was the anointed, the sent one. And he had completed what the Father had asked him to do and was raised in acknowledgement of that fact. Look, said the angel, this is where he was laid and he's no longer here. The grave clothes are lying here instead. And the covering that had had been on Jesus' face was folded neatly and lying on the side. 
this is what the women would have seen in the tomb that we learn from the other Gospels. And so the angel is saying, you have heard the pronouncement. You have seen the empty place where Jesus' body was laid. This is where he should have been, but he isn't because he's risen. Now you must become witnesses of what you have seen here. The angel is commissioning these women to go out and be witnesses. And says to them, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Notice that the angel didn't say, just go and tell those people that are interested or those ones that followed Jesus for a while. The angel said, go and tell his disciples. This would have been a great encouragement for the disciples because they're currently sitting in Jerusalem in fear. They'd abandoned him in the garden and Peter had betrayed him before the cock had crowed. But here we see the angel is proclaiming a restoration of that relationship and they again, his disciples. There's an ownership. And specifically to Peter, who would have been feeling it more than the others. Something significant is happening here. Despite what the disciples did, and despite Peter's betrayal, their relationship had been restored. And finally the angel says to them, have faith in what has been spoken to you. Have faith in the witness that you have just seen, of what has been shared with you. Understand the truth of what Jesus has spoken to you about before his death and go, go to Galilee in that faith. Jesus is going ahead of you and will meet you there just as he said he would. You see, Jesus speaks the truth. Sometimes it's difficult to take in, but he does. He speaks the truth. And there is more to this story that Mark is hinting about. Just like right back in chapter 1, verse 1, you remember the beginning of the good news. There you would see him, the angel said. Not just an empty tomb, not just empty grave clothes, but the physical risen Lord Jesus. So that's the announcement of the angel. More pieces of the puzzle to put together that Mark is giving to us to have a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. Finally, just the last verse. As we look at the reaction of the women, perhaps we can also consider our own reaction to who Jesus is and what Jesus' resurrection means. So after witnessing the rollback stone, the angel in his announcement, the empty tomb, the empty grave clothes, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. The word uh, bewildered here is the same that Mark uses uh, in the reaction to the parents of the parents and disciples uh, when back in chapter 5:42 Jesus raises the young daughter from the dead. I don't know if you remember that story, but that's the the reaction that he uses. The same word as he uses here for bewildered. This is not a, a confusion, but an astonishment at the enormity and the realisation of what they had just witnessed. 
They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were stunned into silence. And for a time they didn't say anything to anyone. What was the reason for their silence? Because they were afraid. But this is not a fear that we might immediately think of, given the circumstances, but rather this is a reverent fear. And this is the same word that Mark uses many times throughout the Gospel. It's almost a theme. Uh, It comes up so much. And it's used when there is an awesome disclosure of God's presence and power. Like the fear that came on the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. And this is the fear that caused them to cry out, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is the same fear that the townspeople felt when they witnessed the demon-possessed man in his right mind after a legion of uh, demons had been sent into the pigs. This fear caused them at that time to urge Jesus to depart from them. This is the same fear that came over the disciples in the boat on the lake when Jesus was walking towards them across the water. And it was the same fear that caused them to cry out, Truly, you are the Son of God. And so there we have it, the last clue. There is a reverent fear here that points to Jesus' complete identity. Anointed Messiah, the Son of God. And so Mark's Gospel ends with an abrupt ending very consistent with the whole style of Mark so far. We're left with the angel's pronouncement ringing in our ears and the strong reaction of the women. They witness their reverential fear, kind of an emotional validity to the physical reality of of the clues that we've been told about. The rolled away stone, the empty tomb, the empty grave clothes. Who is this Jesus? This was no ordinary man, but that's just not enough to describe this situation. The witness that Mark has built for us of his life, death and resurrection, we have to go beyond in order to describe Jesus' identity because of this witness that we see. Jesus is the anointed Messiah, anointed for a mission, the Son of God, the God-man. The implications of these identities are huge. If Jesus really is the God-man, then he can be trusted. Then this mission that he talks about, that he came to die in our place, that we might be right before God for all the things that we've done wrong, purposely, turning away from him, breaking his laws, burning our relational bridges, all these things the Bible calls sins, This is good news that Jesus says he came to put right. Mark rightly puts it, this is not just good news, but this is the beginning of good news. This is a solid hope for the future. This can start today and impact every day going forward to eternity. If the resurrection is true, then it will impact everything. And in faith, we can embrace life. But not just a blind faith that maybe society talks about sometimes. But this is a faith built on witness. 
and witness of some of the things that we've been talking about today. If you're a Christian this morning, your whole life is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus too. And just as Jesus told his disciples that he was going before them into Galilee, and they were to take that on faith, Jesus tells us too that he goes before us in the resurrection, and that we will follow him. But not yet, because he's called us on mission first. He's called us to be witnesses to that resurrection too, with our whole lives. And that's the mission that we should not forget as Christians. That we too are a witness of the resurrection. It should stun us into silence. It should bring about within us a reverent fear, just as it did in the women on that first day of the week. But then it should compel us to go and proclaim that we might be agents of the continuation of the good news of Jesus Christ that was begun in us. So this series has been questions and answers in Mark's gospel. And the biggest question that Mark puts to us is who is Jesus? What is our response this afternoon? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads together. Perhaps if you're here this afternoon and you've not committed your life to Jesus and you've begun perhaps to accept the witness of the resurrection of Jesus as we've seen in the Bible, as he talks about, and as maybe you've seen in the lives of Christians around you. In 2 Corinthians 2, 6, we read, Today is the day of salvation. You can give your sin to Jesus today that you might receive eternal life. If you'd like to do that, perhaps while we're having our heads bowed, you can just raise your hand as a way of stepping forward and declaring that today is that day of salvation. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner and need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place, paying the penalty for my sins. I am willing right now to turn from my sin and accept Jesus Christ as my personal Saviour and Lord. I commit myself to you and ask that you send the Holy Spirit into my life to fill me and take control and to help me become the kind of person you want me to be. Thank you, Father, for loving me. In Jesus' name. Amen.